It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi, broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kHz, that is on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also stream us on channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Joala Netulo, Tracy Boomgaard and Tabiso Ndima this hour. Your top stories. The crisis in Zimbabwe coalition calls on SEDEC and the African Union to support and guarantee the internal and inclusive stakeholders dialogue. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says the political party funding bill will come into effect on the 1st of April. We'll look at those and other issues in the program. Joala Netulo has your news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. The new president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chesakedi, has resumed his inaugural speech after falling ill while addressing thousands of his supporters in the capital, Kinshasa. Chesakedi says he was exhausted by the long election process and the emotion of the occasion. He won the December election, but the results were disputed by the opposition, alleging irregularities and corruption. His victory was then upheld by the country's highest court and was sworn into office a short while ago. The BBC's Julian Bedford reports on the problems facing Chisakedi. The problems confronting Felix Tshisekedi are numerous. There's conflict. About 70 armed groups have been operating in eastern Congo, while numerous mass graves were uncovered in the southern Kasai region last year. There's disease. More than 400 people have died in a continuing outbreak of the Ebola virus. And there's Congo's ruined infrastructure. But speak to ordinary Congolese, and they'll tell you that there's one thing Mr Tshisekedi needs to do, and that's rein in the rampant corruption that has left the vast majority of the population impoverished. Protests have reportedly broken out in several Sudanese cities, including the capital Khartoum, following calls for mass rallies. Police fired tear gas at, protests, at protesters in Buri neighborhood of Khartoum and in the north of the capital. There were also protests in several areas of Omdurman, uh, Khartoum's twin city. The eastern city of Al-Qadif, hundreds of protesters gathered in the area of the main market, chanting, Down, that's freedom, freedom, uh, protest. Protests, protests rather, triggered by a worsening economic crisis have spread across Sudan since December last year, with many calling for an end to President Omar al-Bashir's three-decade rule. Zimbabwe's army says soldiers accused of beating residents in townships following protests over fuel price hikes were imposters who tarnished the name of the military. Security forces have been cracking down on violent demonstrations that erupted last week after President Emerson Nangagwa decreed a sharp increase on the price of fuel. Riots groups say a dozen people have died in the unrest, though police put the figure at three. Zimbabwe National Army spokesperson Alfios Mokotore says those involved were not bona soldiers. An Algerian court has released a journalist a month after he was sentenced to one year in jail for taking part in an unauthorized protest. Head of the news websites Algri Direct and Dari Presse, Aldin Mela, was arrested on December 9th for attending a rally in support of an imprisoned singer. He was found guilty of unlawful assembly and sentenced to one year in jail on December 25th. On Wednesday, a court in Algiers gave him a suspended six-month sentence and released him on appeal.
And finally, South Africa's annual Cape Town Jazz Festival held in the Western Cape Province says it will pay tribute to the internationally acclaimed Zimbabwean musician Oliver Mtuguzi, who died in Harare on Wednesday, aged 66. Festival director Billy Domingo says Mtuguzi's slot on the upcoming program will remain open for a deserving tribute to him and no other artist will replace Mtuguzi. This comes as tributes continue pouring in from different parts of the African continent. Domingo says they are still shocked of to the news of Mtukuti's death. He was going to close Saturday night on the main stage with Vusi, and I think it will be fitting to keep that spot open. I'm going to have meetings with his family, and I still want to honor him, like with you, Masikela, doing that night, the tribute. Right now, it's just the sadness of, of losing such an incredible musician. No, he's performed quite a few times, strangely enough, the last time, I think it was 2015. He missed the flight, and he never even rocked up for the performance. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Joalane, for that update. It is 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest. Let's start in Zimbabwe, where the crisis in Zimbabwe coalition has called on SEDEC and the AU to support and guarantee an internal and inclusive stakeholders dialogue in Zimbabwe. This follows a week of violent protests after the government drastically increased fuel prices. Members of the coalition, together with Human Rights Watch, addressed the media in Johannesburg in South Africa on the current crisis in Zimbabwe. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Mahlangu was there and filed this report for us. Civil society groups met to discuss the crisis in Zimbabwe. They claim 12 people have been killed, at least 78 shot, and more than 240 people assaulted and tortured. The protests, which lasted three days, saw people taken to the streets in outrage over a government move to more than double fuel prices, prompting a ruthless crackdown by security forces. The violence prompted President Emerson Nangagwa to cut short a foreign tour, which was to have taken him to the World Economic Forum in Davos. After flying home this week, he pledged to investigate the security forces over any misconduct. Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition Regional Coordinator Blessing Vava says urgent interventions are compelling. We demand the immediate release of political prisoners who are facing trumped up charges and cases allowed to be conducted in line with the law to afford accused persons the right to fair trials and Zimbabwe must immediately return to the rule of law. Two, we demand the immediate removal of the military from conducting policing duties and immediate halt of the state-sponsored violence on citizens. Three, we demand that uh, the state media desist from fueling human rights abuses and further polarizing our society, and Zimbabwe must immediately return to peaceful environment that allows for honest and genuine uh, dialogue. Youth Committee Chairperson of the Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition, Pride Mgono, says South Africa has a role to play in dealing with the crisis. I think the key point at this moment is that South Africa should realize that it has a role to play, especially President Ramaphosa. Uh, Given that South Africa is well knowledgeable of these facts, given their history with apartheid, that a state can turn rogue and turn against its citizens accuse them of crimes that they could not have committed 
And apparently in Zimbabwe, to show you how grave the situation is, if we had convened such a press conference in Zimbabwe to read the statement that we are reading here, it could be considered subversion of the constitutionally elected government and it would put us on a trial where we could get 20 years. That's how bad it is that you cannot say this statement. You simply say the government is condemning this. Deva Mavinga, Southern Africa Director at Human Rights Watch, says the major challenge in Zimbabwe is the militarization of governance issues. The elephant in the room is the military. They are involved instigating and at the forefront of the ongoing abuses with impunity because there is no accountability. So without addressing the issues of militarization, it would not be possible to have a proper solution to the crisis in Zimbabwe. We know that there are in Zimbabwe acute shortages of fuel, of basic foodstuffs, and in fact, uh, it was actually a hike in prices that triggered the protest. But also, the truth is in acute shortage in Zimbabwe. Justice is in shortage and short supply. The rule of law has been abandoned. We have said to President Mnangagwa, who is calling for accountability uh, for the military, that talk is cheap. There is need for action to demonstrate sincerity and commitment to accountability. President Mnangagwa has meanwhile called for a dialogue to seek a lasting solution to the economy of the country. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Ntlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. The Norwegian Refugee Council is calling for Nigerian and Cameroonian authorities to provide immediate assistance to thousands of Nigerian civilians fleeing violence. Hilda Jorgensen, advocacy manager at the Norwegian Refugee Council in Nigeria, explains. Since uh, 2009, there has been an insurgency here. So it's 10 years of humanitarian crisis. It's been leading to large-scale displacement. In total, there are 2 million that are displaced in the Lake Chad Basin. Uh, Approximately between 1.8 and 1.9 million are displaced here in northeast Nigeria. But you also have more than 200,000 refugees that are staying in Cameroon, Chad, and Niger. Talk to us about, you know, the present conditions of, of these displaced refugees, um, their camps and sites in the northeastern of, of Nigeria. What is the situation like and what sort of conditions do they then come to? In Borno State, uh, primarily, they are bearing the brunt of all the displacement, a large scale of it. You have an insurgency here and lots of and high levels of insecurity. So the government is controlling uh, certain towns. Uh, and what is uh, another aspect or another problem with this whole situation is that people uh, have to stay in camps in these uh, government-controlled areas. So you also have one-third or 600,000 of all the displaced here in Borno or northeast Nigeria that live on far too little land. So it's becoming increasingly more congested in these camps across Borno where these people are staying. And I just uh, heard today as well that in total since November, uh, there's been an additional 80,000 displaced. So now we are talking almost 1.9 million displaced people in Borno alone, which is 200,000 more than just two years ago. And the conditions in the camps, it's quite uh, poor, especially if you look at uh, these camps that are so congested. In addition to the 1.9 million displaced that are here now, there is approximately 
800,000, almost 1 million people in areas in Borno that we can't access. So they are living in non-government controlled areas and they can't access assistance at all. What sort of challenges then do you come across as you are assisting refugees and these IDPs, uh, you know, specifically in, in Nigeria? Well, one challenge of uh, assisting these people is that the context here is, uh, is very hard. So, for example, uh, because you have all these inaccessible areas and you have lots of roads that are not secure enough to travel, uh, the whole humanitarian response in Borno State or in northeast Nigeria depend on four helicopters alone. Uh, and that is UNHAS or the UN um, Humanitarian Air Service. So four helicopters is everything that we depend on to get almost all our aid workers out in the field to provide assistance both to host communities and to and to the IDPs. These areas where we can't access at all. So of course the assistance is limited to the areas that we have a certain level of government control. You also have high levels of insecurity, meaning that in areas such as Monguno or Damasak, uh, which are close to to neighboring countries in areas that are more insecure uh, and you have an unpredictable level of violence leading to us having to pull out staff at certain times. That is Hilda Jorgensen, advocacy manager at the Norwegian Refugee Council in Nigeria, talking to Komoto Mopulane. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It is 17.15 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says the political party funding bill will come into effect on the 1st of April. However, the electoral body concedes that it will be impossible for political parties to disclose their funders before the general elections expected in May. President Cyril Ramaphosa signed the proposed legislation into law this this week. Abongwe Kobogana reports. President Sarah Ramaphosa's signing of the bill into law has been eagerly awaited. However, IECC Osai Mamabulo told a media briefing yesterday that it looks impossible for all the political parties to be able to disclose their funding before this year's elections. Mamabulo said after the elections, all parties represented in parliament are expected to reveal their funding, including their expenditure. Donors and political parties will have to declare all donations that exceed 100,000 rand. According to this legislation, annual donations made by each funder may not exceed 15 million rand and foreign donations are prohibited. Fines up to a million rand will be issued to political parties for failing to disclose their funders. The signing into law of the bill 
has been welcomed by political parties and civil society groups. The ANC said in a statement that it supports the regulation of party funding as it will strengthen democracy and transparency. The DA, FF Plus and ACDP also welcomed the move. Solima Lazi of the DA, Steve Swartz of the ACDP and leader of the FF Plus, Peter Hunewald. For members of the executive who are part of the DA, when they go and fundraise for the DA, there always has to be another member of the party so that there is no unethical promises that, that people make um, so that we can begin to separate the possible influence that uh, donors may have um, towards how government does its business. Of course, it will also result in a more equitable distribution of funds to all political parties. Well, firstly, the Free Front Plus say the signing is uh, long overdue. Uh, it is a very important uh, new uh, legislation because of the fact, firstly, it's a more justified, uh, can I say, uh, amount that will be given even to other opposition parties. IFP Treasurer General Naren Singh says the act is important, particularly for transparency in the spending of public money. Uh, we as the IFP are pleased that the president has now signed the bill into law and uh, that uh, transparency of uh, public funding will be made uh, uh, available. We know that uh, NGOs, including my vote counts, went to the constitutional court and there was an injunction that we had to effect amendments to legislation. We have done that now, and uh, what we are pleased about is that the ratio of funding that we receive currently through the IEC will be amended in such a way that smaller parties will benefit uh, a little more than we have had in the past. The IEC has also emphasized the importance and responsibility of political parties to disclose their accounts for receiving donations for the elections. Abongwe Kobogane CBC News at Parliament. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority, or the NPA, this morning withdrew corruption charges against the son of former South African President Jacob Zuma. Tuduzana Zuma had been charged in connection with alleged corrupt activities relating to the controversial Free State Day Reform project involving the politically connected Gupta family. Last year, former Deputy Finance Minister ABC Jonas testified about how a Gupta brother offered him about 44,000 US dollars to accept the the position of finance minister. Zuma has enjoyed a close relationship with the Guptas but has denied any illegal dealings between himself and the controversial family. More from President of the Law Society of the Northern Provinces, Dr. Llewellyn Kerr Lewis. Well, first of all, yes, I do. Uh, I, I must say I was a bit uh, confused by the reasoning behind the, the sudden withdrawal against the charges. I mean, after all, uh, once the prosecuting authority decided to prosecute the design Zuma, surely at that stage the reasoning should have been that there was a prima facie case which they are willing and able to to convert into a full frontal uh, attack uh, from the state's perspective against any possible defense uh, of the design Zuma in a court of law and be able to prove the matter beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, all of a sudden, the allegation is not necessarily that they are not willing to proceed with the matter ultimately, but they want provisionally to withdraw the charges. The reasoning given to the court for the provisional, which they call provisional in quotation marks withdrawal, is the fact that a key witness is currently 
uh, about to testify or busy testifying before the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. Now, with all due respect, um, surely the court have, could have accommodated that witness later on during the proceedings. There was no reason, absolutely no reason, why the matter and the trial could not uh, commence uh, and, and the initial uh, proceedings and preliminary issues sorted out between the state and the defense. That would have saved time, and time is obviously, in, in, in the court perspectives, money, and ultimately justice delayed is justice denied. So I was a bit concerned about that observation in court. Um, but for your listeners' purposes, one must just take into consideration the Criminal Procedure Act, which makes provision for the fact that a matter, and I'm talking specifically a criminal matter, in most instances, and in this instance as well because the charges are corruption, um, there is the possibility for the state, uh, they've got a 20-year prescription period uh, to institute criminal proceedings. Now, obviously, rather sooner than later, but uh, all is not... Uh, forgotten for the state, they can still decide to reconsider their position and ultimately either prosecute once they are ready, which could be next week, today, even next month or next year or for the next, within the next uh, 15 years because ultimately the matter is already almost three or four years old and they've got 20 years to do so. The other alternative is for them to say, listen, we are not prepared to take the matter to court because our evidence is not as we thought initially, it's not going to prove the case beyond reasonable doubt in which event any party, uh, interested party out there can institute a private prosecution in future in terms of our Section 7 to 17 of our Criminal Procedure Act, which means that ultimately other institutions or semi-state institutions, including uh, non-government organizations like Afri Forum and all these others that we get to know these days, taking the matters to court, will then be eligible to do so. So there's a couple of possibilities that exist and one would have to see what the ultimate result will be. Mm. Now, I mean, if we're looking into um, uh, just fast-tracking a little bit, uh, would the NPA be able to reinstate the charges at a later stage? And uh, what do you think uh, the investigators will be doing at the moment? Uh, definitely, like I said, the mere fact that the matter, um, that there was no verdict or outcome in the mm. matter based on merits means that the state do have that prerogative to reinstitute uh, 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 criminal charges against uh, Mr. Dizani Zuma in future. Uh, like I said, 20 years is the ultimate cut-off date, in other words, the prescription period, that they want the uh, answer. The other question you've answered, what are the investigators doing currently? Well, hopefully, uh, they are now following whatever is said uh, in the Zondo Commission of Inquiry, because ultimately that is exactly what the state prosecutor indicated to the regional court today in the commercial, special commercial crime court in um, uh, in, in Johannesburg, indicating that that is the reason why they are not prepared to proceed at this stage, because they need to revisit key evidence uh, that is currently about to be given before the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. So hopefully they're going to scrutinize that evidence, maybe have it transcribed, and then reconsider their position, add on to affidavits maybe. And one would like to think that they will perpetuate the matter and see to it that justice ultimately is served either by means of taking the matter back to court and ultimately get a conviction or an acquittal. As far as I'm concerned, the real issue which should be answered is the court must have the final say in the matter. Is he guilty? Is he innocent? Really, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, as long as the public out there see that people will be taken to task for whatever the allegations there are against them, and that one just cannot walk away scot-free purely because um, for some kind of a temporary, let's call it an intervention, in this instance, a person to be busy testifying before the Sunday Commission of Inquiry. 
Dr. Llewellyn Kerr Lewis is the president of the Law Society of the Northern Provinces on the line with Zikona Miso. Musicians on the African continent are paying tribute to the late Zimbabwean music legend Oliver Mdukuti. The 66-year-old human rights activist died yesterday at the Avenues Clinic in Harare after a short illness. Mdukuti was also a goodwill ambassador of the United Nations Children's Fund for Southern African Region. Sophie Mugwena reports. What shall we do? What shall we do? Dugu, as he was affectionately known, rose to fame when he joined the wagon, a band that went gold with their first single in 1977. Dugu was multilingual, sang in Shona language, incorporated it with Ndebele and English. And his fellow musicians in Zimbabwe, Albert Nyati, McDonald Chendavainzi, Tatenda Mahachi, say his passing is a great loss. I'm really very sorry. It's difficult to, to say. It's difficult to accept. Uh, I, I, I have no words. Just as we were, we've had performances together, both at home and in Europe, and suddenly this, it's difficult to accept. Uh, it's too much. We've lost a father. When I say father, I mean like literally a father. I remember last Father's Day, he called us to Pagaripai and uh, to say we were watching Neria and then we were talking about the old times and then he made uh, the team to cook lunch for us. He would treat artists like, like sons, you know what I mean? So just being here and getting such a shocker, you ask yourself who's going to be our father in the music industry? Who's going to keep us sane, you know, when we lose control? Uh, it's too much. It's very sad and it's very hard to accept that uh, Dr. Oliver Mtugut is always normal. And uh, to me, I remember him as a humble guy. To me, he was a father, he was a friend. He taught me a lot of things. I used to spend a lot of time at his home with him. Even when I worked with him on the song we did together, he never, you never showed that he's not, in the same le- he's not on the same level with me. When you see us working, when it was about music, we worked as if we are on the same level. You could take my opinions as if they are coming from someone else. He had a number of tours around the world, performing for large crowds in the United Kingdom, the United States of America, Canada, and Lesotho. Mtukuti's incredible career includes over 50 studio albums. The purpose of song is to touch and to touch the next heart, give life and hope, heal the broken heart. If, if, if they can take that and heal themselves from my music, I'll be grateful. He was meant to perform at the Joy of Jazz Festival in Cape Town in March. Retiring really is like running away from yourself, and I can't do that. So there's no retiring in art.
Sophie Mukwena, Johannesburg. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happened now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time, and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report. An enlightened narrative with me, Pule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Seventeen thirty Central African time. Here's Joelana Tulo with your news headlines. Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, the new president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chesakedi, has resumed his inaugural speech after falling ill while addressing thousands of his supporters in the capital, Kinshasa. Protests have reportedly broken out in several Sudanese cities, including the capital, Khartoum, following calls for mass rallies. And finally, South Africa's opposition ACDP leader, Kenneth Meshwe, says the United Nations should send peacekeepers to Zimbabwe. Meshwe and some Party members handed over a memorandum of demands at the UN offices in the capital in Pretoria. For Channel Africa, I'm Sharani Tulo. Thank you very much, Joalane, for that update. Now, the Black Tobacco Farmers Association has been launched in South Africa. The association, the first of its kind, is constituted by 155 black emerging tobacco farmers from different parts of the country. It will see farmers organizing themselves formally to advance their interests to, amongst others, protect South African tobacco farming community. To discuss it further, we're now joined on the line by Chief Member of the Black Farmers Association, Shadrach Sbisi. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Shadrach. Yes, uh, we are welcome. Uh, good evening. Um, Shadrach, what made you think there was a need for a Black Farmers Tobacco Farmers Association? Uh, as you can uh, remember, this uh, industry has been around for almost a century and a couple of years. And... Uh, on our side, we have just stepped in, into this uh, uh, entity in uh, eight years' time. So now farming being a process, uh, it took time for us to get the correct training 
and uh, all the business um, skills going forward. And uh, when we were now ready to play it positive as far as uh, the business of uh, farming was concerned, we had uh, this ACT uh, trade coming in. Then we see to it that we had uh, the need to form ourselves so that uh, we can at least have a voice to engage the industry stakeholders as far as uh, the government. Uh, mm. um, I, I, is this because you didn't have a voice previously? We didn't have a, a voice for ourselves previously. That's why we felt the need that we should uh, organize ourselves and uh, have a voice that is going to speak on our behalf. Mm. Um, and when you were working with your white counterparts in the past, before the Black Farmers Association, Tobacco Farmers Association was formed, about what was their reaction to um, your inclusion into the industry? Uh, to be honest, uh, I cannot uh, say it was uh, negative, uh, but uh, I would uh, say they saw it uh, as uh, a platform to advance their interest as well, because uh, if you can remember now, the, the government, uh, especially uh, not here in South Africa, alone the worldwide, they are fighting tooth and nail to see to it that uh, the tobacco industry is uh, out of business, so to speak, but they're forgetting what a positive uh, uh, impact it has in the population that uh, is doing uh, uh, the the leaf. Yeah. Um. Where are these um black farmers based? Are they are they based all over South Africa? Now the 155 members are spread in the five provinces, which is uh, the weather allows uh, the the growth of uh, the tobacco leaf. That is Mpumalanga, Limpopo. KZN, uh, Northwest, and uh, of late now, uh, the Eastern Cape as well. Mm. Now, now let's talk about some of the issues that are affecting um, a black farmer specifically. You did mention that um, y- you want to have a voice, um, especially when you are talking to industry. What are some of the issues that are facing specifically black farmers? Because surely there must have been um, a bigger reason for you to form this organization. If uh, we, you can recall that uh, uh, the tobacco industry it was unaccessible to us uh, previously, but now we have got the opportunity to participate in that uh, industry as well. And uh, all of a sudden, the the the, the government, as I've alluded uh, before. Uh, impose uh, some stringent regulation in a way that it is what we term as uh, access uh, taxi, which means uh, if you smoke, you have to pay extra money to afford a packet uh, of cigarettes. On the other hand, there is these illicit traders which uh, don't comply to the fiscal. 
Uh, but those uh, sure. that's because um, uh, the paying of extra fees are because of health implications. Um, and I, I wouldn't think that the government was trying to fight the tobacco industry, but they're trying to help people in terms of their health, no? You are precisely correct. But on the other hand, if uh, the legal uh, manufacturers of the leaf are imposed on paying extra tax when there's other role players that are selling the same product at a lesser amount uh, money. It means the people that cannot afford the expensive cigarette, they will go to the lesser uh, expensive cigarette, but in large numbers. So it doesn't assist anyone. And to, on the top of that, they don't pay taxes that the government that assists the government to see to it on other necessities uh, to help uh, its citizens. All right. You have formed now. What's your first task? Yes, we have formed now, and uh, now we think we do have a, a voice not only to engage the government, but to engage every stakeholders in the industry in a way that we will be able to look for funds to train and mentor the farmers so that they can be competitive in the industry so that they can make a handsome return out of their hard labor. That is all about. All right. Thank you very much. Later. That is Shadrax BC. Shadrax BC is the chief member of the Black Farmers Association, a new association that was formed today in Irene in Pretoria. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It is not... uh it's not time for your economic news yet with uh, Tracy Boomgard. It is 17.39 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, Cameroon says it's finding it difficult reaching out with humanitarian assistance to more than 100,000 refugees fleeing the separatist crisis in the English-speaking regions as some are trapped by the gunfighters. Calls on fighters to drop guns and be pardoned are not yielding fruit as rehabilitation centers to accommodate them remain empty. Mokikinzaga visited homes saturated with internally displaced persons in Yawunde. Streets are getting busy at 5 a.m. this Thursday in Yawunde. Among the several people already out are 12 children from the residence of 45-year-old single mother of two, Gwendolyn Doom. She says the children have to fetch water for the entire household, without which she will not be able to cope. So when they sleep on the floor, let's be tight, then we drink. Now we don't be 21. She says she is finding it so difficult because the people she has to take care of 
have increased from 3 to 21 within a month. She says she can no longer afford to pay her water and electricity bills, buy chicken, meat or fish, and that a 50 kilogram bag of rice hardly lasts for two weeks since they eat only rice for breakfast, lunch and supper. I can go buy some tea some day to make a meal at home. Ndum says even though she is a hawker, she cannot allow children fleeing separatist fighting in a northwestern town of Mbengui on the streets. She says well-wishers in the northwestern town of Bamenda contributed money and paid transport fares for the children after they had trekked for days in bushes from Bengui as they fled fighting. She says some of the children do not know where their parents are. Ndum says she is pleading with the government and well-wishers to help her to take care of the children who lack means to go to school. It is not because we are able. Jehovah, we just give it as a sign of Lord, which is what you have recommended in your word. Father, we pray, oh God, that even as the This woman prays as a hundred internally displaced persons have answered calls from the non-governmental organization Voice of the Voiceless to collect food items, dresses and mattresses. Christian Chindongong, official of the NGO, says they ask well-wishers to contribute for them to assist the fleeing English speakers in need. Increasing their standard of living doesn't mean that we really have so much. We just have to give them because we know what it means to have nothing. The government should listen to the people, organize a dialogue, I mean an inclusive dialogue, so that we can see the end of this group. Because no matter what we give these people, it can never make them happy. The only happiness that these people can uh, achieve is to see their homes again. They need to go back home. They need to sit with their families again. The 100 who have received assistance from the Voice of the Voiceless are part of the more than 100,000 IDPs and refugees who have fled to Nigeria and are still to receive assistance from the government. This week, Cameroon's Minister of Territorial Administration, Paul Atanganje, said the government has assisted more than 60,000 internally displaced persons in the two troubled English-speaking regions. He said it was difficult to reach out to those hiding in the bushes because of the fighting and that some had been trapped by the fighters and stressed that humanitarian organizations wishing to assist the IDPs must obtain permission from the government as some of the assistance may end up with the fighters. Nji said rehabilitation centers set up to accommodate armed separatists who dropped their weapons had opened their doors and were waiting. We have to respect the instructions from President Paul Bia that when you lay down your weapons, you are taken to the centers. You are provided health facilities. So you have a psychologist who are there to start educating the population. And we have training facilities in those centers. You can be a carpenter, you can be a bricklayer, you can be a tailor, you can be a driver. And those are facilities provided by the government. So I think that it's a call to the population to come out of the bushes. But not even a single fighter has officially dropped his gun. The rehabilitation centers in the English-speaking southwestern town of Boya and Yaoundé are empty. In a WhatsApp interview, fighter Edward Ngafin, who refused to say where he was, described the committee created in December to disarm and reintegrate separatist fighters and Boko Haram terrorists who put down their weapons as a trap. 
He says the disarmament commission that has been created sounds like a trap. He says he will not go to it and can never advise any fighter to listen to any promise made by the government of Cameroon because he does not understand how a government that has always tormented English speakers will suddenly claim that it cares and that it will recruit everyone. Armed separatists have been fighting with government forces in the two English-speaking regions since November 2017. Separatists want to secede from the Francophone majority Cameroon and create a new nation they have called Ambazonia. President Bia has promised to crush all those who fail to drop their weapons and insisted that the unity of his country cannot be negotiated. The United Nations estimates that over 430,000 people have been displaced internally by the conflict. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. It is 17.45 Central African time. Here's Tracy Pumgod with your economic news. Thank you. The International Monetary Fund's Managing Director, Christine Lagarde, has warned those attending the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, that the trade tension between China and the United States is a major risk facing the global economy. It's the second time this week that Lagarde has made the warning. She warned that a slowdown in China's fun, however, if the slowdown is fast, it will constitute a real issue. Kariko Cafe Connoisseur, a company in Uganda, has started using blockchain, the technology behind virtual currency Bitcoin. This is to certify shipments of coffee and meet growing demand from consumers for more information about where goods come from. The blockchain certification means consumers can trace the coffee's journey by using their smartphones to scan the product's QR codes. Uganda is Africa's largest coffee exporter, followed by Ethiopia, and has some of the world's highest quality beans. Nelson Mandela University in Port Elizabeth in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province has joined forces with the Strathclyde University in the United Kingdom in tackling the world's plastic pollution crisis in the ocean. The $25 million program will be funded by the UK Research and Innovation's Global Challenges Research Fund and various international stakeholders. The Nelson Mandela University has positioned itself as a leader in ocean sciences research in this global initiative. Statistics from UNESCO show that more than a million seabirds die every year due to the pollution of plastic debris in the ocean. Professor of Environmental Law and Governance at Strathclyde University, Elisa Morgera, says it is imperative that the various research institutions involved come together to find solutions in curbing the crisis the ocean faces. 
We need to put our uh, energies together and this is why um, Strathclyde and University, Mandela University are working together with others to look at both legal issues, uh, natural science issues, as well as social issues. And really, um, really looking at the fact that if, if we can't work together, we will not be able to address all these threats at once. And addressing one threat at a time is not really going to help our oceans in time to prevent any irreparable damage. A youth charity which was founded by Britain's Prince Charles has become the latest organization to back away from Huawei following security fears raised about the Chinese tech firm. The Prince's Trust says it will not accept new donations from Huawei. The company had supported the Trust for more than a decade. University of Oxford and Queen's University Belfast have also decided not to ask Huawei for new donations. But the University of Cambridge says its partnership with the tech firm remains in place. Huawei also has ties to the universities of York, Southampton, Reading and Edinburgh, Napier, among others. The Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, says she hopes President Donald Trump would back a bill passed by Congress to fund government agencies affected by the shutdown. This after Trump confirmed that he will not deliver his annual State of the Union speech until after the shutdown is over. Trump initially said that the, sh- that the speech rather should be on time, on schedule and on location. Around 800,000 federal workers have been left without pay amid the shutdown. The rise over Trump's demand for the U.S. government to fund a more than $5 billion U.S.-Mexico border war, which Democrats are refusing to allow. The BBC's Chris Buckler reports. Donald Trump had talked about going ahead with his State of the Union speech somewhere other than Congress. But he now says that no venue could compete with its history, tradition and importance. The president is locked in a battle with Democrats over his demands for $5 billion to build a border wall with Mexico. The Roy has left a number of government departments without funding and hundreds of thousands of federal workers not knowing when they will next get paid. The U.S. dollar is trading at 361.29 Nigerian Naira, 10.34 Botswana Pula, at 100 Kenyan shillings and 77 cents, and 11.91 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.79 Brazilian hail, 66.23 Russian ruble, 71.05 Indian rupee, 6.79 Chinese yuan, and a 13.87 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,282 and platinum at $795 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.90 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Right, thank you very much, Tracy Boomgod, for that update. It's now time for Sports News. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Tema with your latest sports update at this hour. Legendary Bafana Bafana striker Philemon Chipa Masinga was laid to rest earlier today 
in his hometown, Kuma location in the northwest province. Masinga passed on last week after a long battle with cancer. During his heydays, Masinga played for Jomo Cosmos, Sundowns, Leeds United in Britain and Bari in Italy. At the time of his passing, Masinga was the vice president of the South African Masters and Legends Football Association. His former Bafana Bafana teammate, Jerisi Kwasana, sheds more light on what Masinga still wanted to achieve and to contribute to South African football. Let me take you into cheaper's confidence regarding things he wanted to do in his memory and for his legacy. Together, one, together with the leadership of the South African Masters and Legends organization, this is what he wanted. We should engage the national government, all ministries, particularly sports and recreation, to work closely with our organization. Two, we should meet the Premier, the Mayor and MSC of Sports and Arts and Culture in Gauteng. Three, remind the SAFA President, Dr. Danny Jordan, about his acceptance speech when he was related the SAFA President. Dr. Jordan said in his acceptance speech when he was re-elected, I was seated, we were seated together with Chipa at the SAFA Congress. Dr. Jordan said, I can't be happy that I'm re-elected as the president of SAFA when Chipa and Buddha are seated there. He said, we need to visit the SAFA constitution to make sure that we amend the constitution because those guys, if we go through the voting system, the current voting system, they will never form part of the National Executive Committee. On to tennis news. 2009 Australian Open champion Rafael Nadal cruised into his fifth final in Melbourne with a 6-2, 6-4, 6-love victory over Greek rising star Stefanos Tsitsipas. This is the Spaniard's 25th Grand Slam final. He will face the winner of Friday's match between Novak Djokovic and Lucas Pouli. Well, yes, it has been a, a great match, great tournament. Uh, I think I played uh, yeah, very well every day. So just, uh, I don't know, uh, after uh, a lot of months without playing, is uh, probably this, this court, this, this crowd that gave me that unbelievable energy. So, In the women's section, Fourth seed Naomi Osaka outgunned Carolina Pliskova to set up an Australian Open final against Czech eighth seed Petra Kitova. The 21-year-old Japanese star overcame the seventh seed 6-2-4-6-6-4 to reach her second straight Grand Slam final after her breakthrough triumph over Serena Williams in last year's US Open. Today I just had one goal and it was to try as hard as I can and not get angry. Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't do that well in the last two rounds, so that was my only goal, and I think I did it well, so I'm really happy with how I played today. So just give us a quick thought on Serena or Carolina, what lies ahead next, and your thoughts on, on that match coming up next year on Rod Laver. Uh, yeah, I mean, I played them both, um, and they're both very great players. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, and I know that it's going to be tough no matter who I play, and honestly, I'm just trying to go inside because it's a little bit hot right now. You want me to let you go, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. All right, well done. I'm going to let you go. Naomi Osaka. In the other semifinals also played earlier on Thursday, Czech 8th seed Petra Kitova reached her Australian Open final for the first time after getting over American debutant Daniel Collins. 
two-time Wimbledon champions Kitova stomped home 7-6, 7-2 and 6-love. That's your sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa for news, sports and programming from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now let's recap our top stories this hour. The crisis in Zimbabwe coalition calls on SEDEC and the AU to support and guarantee an internal and inclusive stakeholders dialogue. South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission says the political party funding bill will come into effect on the 1st of April. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for today. For myself, Spumele Lezondi, producer Luyanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. You can send your emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we are on plus 278-2332-5905. That is a plus 278 5905. We leave you with Easy to by Java. We're <laughs> <laughs>